I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. I can't remember a time when I wasn't excited about business and food. I mean, that, that really, for me, is is really the, the my story. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, Spindrift founder and CEO Bill Krillman shares all the details of how his sparkling water brand changed the game, using real fruit instead of natural flavoring, which often isn't natural at all. Spindrift has great taste, is slightly sweet, and even a little pulpy. Bill knew early on that Spindrift was his calling, but it took some serious research, a few stumbles, to get the formula just right. It was really a belief that this was important work. Really, It was almost like a quasi-religious belief that this will be an important thing one day if we stay with it. Find out how Bill's early days growing up in Western Massachusetts helped shape his love for food and drink, why building a sparkling water brand was a lot more complex than he thought it would be, and all the ways his little startup isn't so little anymore. Unfinished Biz starts now. Well, Robin, we have a fun one coming up with Bill Krillman here, part of the VMG family. Mm-hmm. I think it's been... Uh, it's been a fun journey with him, one that we bet on pretty early. Yeah, I mean, this is one where uh, we got involved when the business was well under $10 million of sales at that Definitely. point in time. And, you know, I think two things jumped out at us. You know, one really was Bill. We thought that he was going to be an incredible leader. Um, the fact that he was a serial entrepreneur, I think, was something that we weighed heavily uh, and that, that really kind of was a, was a positive factor in, in all of this. And obviously the second is just sparkling water. Um, We thought that the category was going to be up into the right. It was about to become a really big thing. Um, And the fact that, you know, Spindrift in Trader Joe's as a branded product was just turning like crazy. Crushing it. That felt really interesting because, I mean, for folks who don't know, Trader Joe's, you typically get, you know, Trader Joe's branded product there. You don't really actually get to retain your own brand name. That's right. Especially when you're a smaller brand, right? You usually aren't going to have that leverage to kind of keep your brand name on the package, but somehow they were able to do it. So they really leaned in. They really have. So, really excited for everybody to hear more about this. We were with Bill in New York City and got the lowdown on how Spindrift ended up beating the odds. I can't remember a time when I wasn't excited about business and food. I mean, that that really, for me, is, is really the, the, my story. So, you know, you know, the part about growing up on a farm, I think, but just, um, for those that don't, so grew up on a farm out in Western Massachusetts and, um, there's a self-sufficiency to Western Massachusetts. Everyone kind of has, is in some ways in their own business. And that really rubbed off on me. And I'd say the first business I quote got into was um collecting cans when massachusetts uh, put their bottle redemption laws in place in the early 80s um, my brother and i would collect cans take them to the grocery store get the you know 35 cents uh and that mm-hmm. money would then get nice for, for candy so it started <laughs> early and uh, really has continued um continued since so uh you know that led into working on the fishing boats on Nantucket, eventually got my captain's license um, and ran a charter boat. So I'd say that was really my first official business, taking people fishing off of Nantucket. Um, And even tried some experiments along the way. I 
I at Georgetown tried to um, host a turkey dinner. So I purchased a whole bunch of turkeys. We lived in the rectory of a church. They let me use their ovens, bake baked all the turkeys, invited every friend I, I had. And charged admission? <laughs> charged $5. And, um, and, uh, that so doesn't sound all that profitable. It was it, well, that. that he didn't say it was a good business. It wasn't a good business. <laughs> a lot of lessons, though, right? This is That's about right. lessons. Exactly. Today. Well, it's unfinished. So, you can always yeah, go, un- back, to, you can go back to the turkey dinners. That's right. And unfortunately, so were the turkeys. They were not um, necessarily well prepared. But, <laughs> um, but we... Uh, I think I lost $9.14 on that um, <laughs> after a lot of work and a lot of turkey. But, but I mean, I just – I love food. I yep. mean, the headline is I just – I can't think of a time where I wasn't just consumed with food. I, my wife and I cook continuously. We scour, you know, the cities looking for interesting restaurants. And so – and then the business side to me was, was just seemed to be in my DNA. My mom <clears throat> um, was a – is a – you know, kind of a, an adventurer and always sort of pushed us away from maybe more traditional careers. And my dad was kind of a frustrated uh, executive. And so uh, that, that combination was, um, was uh, allowed me to really, I think, be more curious about other vocations um, maybe than my, my friends. Um, so really well, that, that's good. Well, I was going to say, and then how did that all kind of culminate into into a business venture. Yeah, so my senior year at Georgetown, I um, I was in an entrepreneurship class, um, one of, I think, very few at the time that were, that were out there, and wrote a business plan, and that became my first business that eventually became Stirring. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> the business was really offering products that were local to, to Nantucket Island and the Cape area. Um, so again, local food business. It was a mail-order catalog. Um, and we had one product, a, a, a salt and sugar for the rim of the glass that became hugely popular. <clears throat> so we rebranded it as Stirrings. Fortunately, at the time, uh, premium spirits um, were starting to really take off. It was the advent of yep. Sex in the City and Absolute Vodka and Gregory's mm-hmm. and Chopin right. and uh, Kettle. All these brands that we now know were all kind of popping and there was no premium cocktail mix to go with those spirits. And really, no one knew how to make a cocktail, yeah. including mm-hmm. me, by the way. I mean, <laughs> you know, so we 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 got very lucky. I think we had a had an amazing uh, team, and we we sort of built off of that idea of you know premiumizing this category, and that that began a journey of of you know that really has continued. What made since. it different? So you know, the category then was you know kind of the lava lamp style of cocktail mixer <laughs> yeah. you know neon colors uh dusty bottle back of the liquor store somewhere you know maybe the least interesting consumer experience uh in the liquor store and um we we started to partner with actually non-traditional food retailers like williams sonoma mm-hmm. marshall fields these are older yeah retailers. yeah um dayton hudson Crate and Barrel, because they were all looking to sell their um, blenders and right. stemware. <clears throat> right. And we really helped them tell a story. And for me, I think that was that was the beginning of really thinking about uh, brands as stories. Um, you know, that this idea that, <clears throat> you know, you're obviously selling a tangible product, but when you really hit the mark, you're actually selling an experience. And, um, you know, and that we built on that. We started to, you know, uh, partner with other liquor brands and build displays, uh, and then add 
stemware and gift sets and and really you know i think we um i think we did it i think we we started um to really um you know kind of bring people into the cocktail experience in a way that they maybe hadn't been able to before because they were afraid of how to make it or right. they didn't have the ingredients so this is right out right out of college basically yeah so i i really have never i was funny i was thinking coming in am i really i other than some of these early jobs you know kind of um in high school and college that was that was i had not i did not have any sort of formal experience it was a lot of trial by fire Mm -hmm. which i think is for has served me well it's obviously been it was challenging especially early on you know suddenly you're building a team and you're meeting with retailers and you're setting pricing and so a lot of that was learned on the fly for sure I think the other thing I learned very quickly is surround yourself with a lot of smart people. Mm-hmm. And that trend has also sort of continued throughout my career. So we had the benefit of great advisors, Bob Burke, Ted Boric, people that <clears throat> had been, were kind of early pioneers in natural foods that could, that came in and really helped advise us yeah. um, as we were setting, kind of setting up that structure. What was the outcome? I mean, what, what, what happened to Stirrings? So we, um, we ended up, um, I think really we scaled the brand very successfully. You know, we got the business to sort of mid-20s in revenue. Yep. <clears throat> and we got very lucky that uh, a story broke on, on the business um, in the Wall Street Journal. Actually, the next week a phone call came in from Diageo, which um, is the, you know, the largest spirit company in the world. Um, and they were interested in our product as a as a explainer of their whole portfolio of right. brands. Um or of spirits and so that um led to conversations eventually an investment for them so for two years they were an investor in our business um and i actually moved over to london during that time and oh, got wow. to work with their corporate team which was super exciting traveled the, the globe selling cocktails yeah, nice. <laughs> that's a good gig it was a great gig um and and really it turned out to be a great education around sort of globally food um but um, and then they, they purchased the balance. So that investment was 07. They purchased the balance in 2009. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think, again, bittersweet, right? Anytime I think you, these, these brands become your kids. Mm-hmm. And so um, um, that was my first experience going through the whole building brand. And then the hard, you know, the hard, you know, kind of release that goes on when you are no longer with a brand, but <clears throat> what would you have done differently as you look back at stir- the, the stirrings era? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think, you know, that for me, the big personal journey I was on was sort of learning how to be CEO on the job. I mean, I, I did not, I think I was the entrepreneurial side of it was very, <clears throat> um, came, I guess, probably more naturally to me. I always say whenever I'm out in the world that, you know, entrepreneurs are not, are actually, set up to not be great CEOs. (laughs) They're the ones that are, you know, the contrarians in the room. They're Mm -hmm. not necessarily consensus builders. And so, um, I, I really had to, to, I spent a lot of time really observing, learning, making mistakes, trying to, you know, to kind of solve for them. And, and so I think, um, for me, you know, the, the, the big takeaway was, um, you know, the importance of, having a great team around you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there's a sense as an early stage entrepreneur that you have to be in every room, every decision meeting room and kind of <clears throat> everything needs to funnel through you. And I think as you mature, 
um, you realize that actually in many ways the opposite is true. If you do a great job building a team and you create a great culture that you empower that team to then make those decisions and and that I think that's been the big takeaway. And so are you saying you felt at stirrings that you you tried to run too many things through through a yeah. central through you, essentially through you and didn't build enough team. Exactly. Is that, is that what yeah, you're saying? That's exactly right. Yeah, I think I mean I, I think it was it was we had a we had some great we the whole team was amazing. We had some great leaders and and sort of great regional team and all the way down the system. I just think you know, you're kind of you, as an early stage entrepreneur, I was sort of in my own head, you know, mm-hmm. you're saying you're so worried about the brand and the fundraising and you you sort of don't it's hard to live in the moment, right? right? And be you know, yep. enjoy it, number one, and also, I think, feel like um, every decision is in the end of the world, you know. So mm-hmm. um, so I think I, I just – I think the benefit of time, some distance, I think that really helped me, you know, shape a lot of the thinking and what we ultimately applied. I think there's other business learnings, you know, that <clears throat> the liquor world is extremely dependent on the three-tier system. Yeah. And so it can be frustrating at times to feel like you want to get to the consumer, but you have to go through so right. many layers. Um, so a lot of what we done, have done with Spindrift is actually to, to, to work more directly. And we spent a lot of time in front of the consumer listening, which is was probably not, we didn't do all that well at, at Stirring. So did you, did you have the idea for Spindrift kind of at the tail end of the, the journey with Stirrings or, yeah. or did you, did you take a little break? Yeah, no. I, so we, we actually had one of the early, um, sparkling lines in, in, um, uh, at Stirrings. So we had tonic waters, uh, club sodas, yep. ginger ales, which they don't make anymore. And we were competing with Q and, and mm-hmm. fever tree, some of the other early stage guys. <clears throat> um, and I was fascinated by that business. Um, to me it was, you know, just it, it opened up a whole other part of, of mixers that, and um, so so that was where that was the genesis. I, I was a diet coke guy. I drank a lot of carbonated drinks. I still love carbonation, and so, um, but I didn't really have the time to go deep with it. Mm-hmm. And really, what happened, Robin, was when I was in London for those two years, <clears throat> I was exposed to all of this unpasteurized raw less processed food. I mean, even when you buy a loaf of bread, it felt like it would go bad the next day (laughs) instead of what it's often like in the U S at least I felt, um, that things are just built to last forever. Right. And so, um, so that really was the seed that, that, that launched Spindrift kind of coming back in Oh nine, Oh 10. And, and what did, so what was the first thing you launched? So, right. So I spent the incarnation of, of yeah. So I spent a year. So, you know, coming out, I, you know, had all the, you know, the sort of the decompression and then quickly started to think about what was next. And, um, I spent almost a year, uh, about nine months working on the formulation and I knew I wanted to use fresh ingredients that came very early. And that was really just a function of, again, my instinct, just how I would make meal or dish or whatever. But also, um, it, it was clear pretty early that that was differentiated from the category. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, what do you add to that? How do you make it shelf stable? What package yeah. do you glass or yeah. plastic was never an option or cans? I mean, so there were a whole bunch of questions. So where we eventually landed was we we launched four refrigerated sodas. That was really the first entree into the market, 
and in order to then sell those safely, we added we needed a refrigerated distribution system, mm-hmm. which you know glass soda <laughs> didn't exist. Right. Yeah, that's so right. immediately we are set up for you know a longer a longer row, and so we. I then really sort of packed my car with these cold sodas and drove up and down the East Coast selling them where I could. And then we would back into the distribution. So if a great sandwich shop um, uh, in Burlington, Vermont, loved these sodas, I would then figure out who was delivering them produce. And we would get on those trucks and Mm -hmm. then open up um, our distribution. And that was really the seed now the product we do today is actually still quite similar in the sense that it, the the spirit of it um, still is is this you know remains it's it's I think we just we had a, so many learnings along the way that have helped us improve the product. So how um, how long was Spindrift focused on these four real ingredient based sodas? So in let's see, so in in 2012 we um, added a couple of unsweetened versions of the same product um still in glass um confusingly similar in terms of color (laughs) labeling so um but what started to happen was that sparkling water even then was becoming in our view the bigger opportunity the problem is our our product was terrible The, the early version of our sparkling water was just it didn't taste good it had stuff sitting at the bottom it required cold chain it just was there were so many challenges with it <clears throat> on top of that we started to investigate natural flavors which is really the only other ingredient in our com- the competing sp- sparkling waters and we started to really i think become students of sparkling in a different way yeah and we kind of went off script i mean there was really at a 2012 level there was really no one that could help us anymore mm-hmm. figure this out um, so we began a lot of experimentation, a lot of shelf life testing. And ultimately, as, as you know, we, we transitioned entirely away from natural flavors, entirely away from concentrates, entirely away from natural color. I mean, we basically stripped the product all the way down because we felt like it was the right thing to do because it, it cleared up any confusion around how the proposition was different. And because it's what we believed um, as consumers, that, that mm-hmm. we, you know was the right so decision. Why, why is why do all these other companies make sparkling water this way, in, in using natural flavors or essence? Why is there a whole industry based on yeah. that? Why doesn't everybody just make a, something like a Spindrift? So I think I mean, the, the, what we now believe is the reason is because it is really challenging (laughs) (laughs) so our proposition is to take sparkling water and and real fruit okay the reason why that works is because real fruit if we were to take a lemon and squeeze in a glass and just taste that lemon juice it has incredible dimension of flavor it has sweet notes tart notes it smells delicious it's got you know a little sort of um it has some oiliness it just is it is um, round in terms of its flavor. <clears throat> when you start doing anything to that, it becomes less and less, less dimensional. And so what, what we in 14 or 15, when we decided to really focus on the sparkling waters, 
what what we thought he could solve for is not having sugar in sparkling drinks. That, mm-hmm. that there was enough dimension of flavor that people wouldn't miss it. The problem is that it's really hard. So so you have this slurry of fresh juice. Yep. Now you got to you know make sure it's consistent. You got to transport it to all of your facilities. You got to make sure then that it's handled correctly. That it's incorporated the carbonate. I mean. It's such a it's a simple idea, yeah. but the process behind it looks totally different than the other sparkling waters. Um, so, you know, I can't answer the question for why they don't do it, but I my suspicion is just that the challenges around doing it. Um, and frankly, you know, if I asked my team to go back and revisit that, they probably wouldn't sign <laughs> up for it. <laughs> um, it was really a belief that this was important work. We really. It was almost like a quasi-religious belief that this will be an important thing one day if we stay with it. At any point, was there this idea though that like we it just we just can't do it? Whether it's you know seasonality of fruit or yeah. because there's so if it's real fruit, which it is, there's a lot of variability, right? Yeah. So how do you get that consistency? Because I have to imagine it's part of the reason why the other guys just do it with essence. Totally. Yeah, that that is that is so outside of just the the sort of um the the challenge of of moving everything around you're absolutely right the consistency was was the big challenge for us. So that what we had to do so when we doubled down and made the transition out of any natural flavors we we had to become experts now in fruit fruit sourcing and that really was and so we we thought we knew a lot in 14 or 15. We really didn't because, you know, now you need to know varietals. You need to know, um, you know, when grapefruits are in season on the West Coast. Um, you know, what style grapefruit? There's a yeah. million. Which are sweeter, which are more tart. Um, and, and start to, to plan your production based off of that seasonality. And obviously, Mother Nature plays a role in that. What's available even year to year you know, what you might have learned. So, so it really forced us to become, to really double down on way up the supply chain on making sure that, um, that our fruit sourcing was world-class. Um, and that, that ended up being a great, and even today when we run any of our flavors, someone from our business, someone from our, our company is at the facilities with the juice as it's being squeezed, making sure that all of the specs make sense yeah. um, and line up with our with with you know what what we need to be successful so what have you found to be the big i mean you know we're biased in that in that we're we're investors in spindrift and and, and addicted to the product literally what, drinking it right literally now. drinking it right <laughs> now and there's no product that i think that's ever been consumed at the volume of spindrift within our vmg offices and our you know 10 to 15 years of, of doing this what do you find is, you know, to us, it's it's such it's so clearly better than all the other options out there. What do you find that to be the biggest challenge to getting consumers to to convert? So we you know, this is a great question. And <clears throat> to this day, I would say we we almost start every day kind of um, asking ourselves that question. <clears throat> so I think I think in the, at the broadest in the broadest sense, I think. You know, there's been a lot of education, years of training around the more traditional sparkling water flavors. And I would say more broadly, even just 
soda consumption and all carbonated assumption <clears throat> uh, consumption. So there's an expectation mm-hmm. of of a certain type of product. And having done you know hours of demos and and you know be, you know kind of interface with the consumer, I think the the biggest challenge is someone not recognizing that what they're tasting is actually a sparkling water with grapefruit or raspberry. And so, um, so how do you then crack that code? You crack it by being really clear about your messaging. So when you look at our product, <clears throat> there's not, we're not calling out anything except sparkling water and real fruit. So mm-hmm. in some ways less is more for That's us. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've done it through great, um, partnerships and distribution. So when you walk in, we're in New York, when you walk into a sweet green or a Starbucks or <clears throat> Cava or dig in, you're going to see um, our product next to other products that have a similar level of choicefulness with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that has really helped. But above all else, I think is, is ultimately um, taste. So you may not recognize what you're tasting the first time or even second time. But, you know, we've heard back from our consumers and our marketing team, you know, really is focused on this is that, um, you know, after you've sat with it for a while and, and enjoyed the product, you know, you, you sort of, as you said, almost develop an expectation of flavor such that when you go back to some of the other products, right. it suddenly it's, is just feels disappointing. Very, right. It's, it's different. It's very yeah. different. So, mm-hmm. so that is, um, but but that is a different type of innovation, and we were talking about sort of, you know, interesting innovation. For me, that is that was the exciting part of Spindrift was really being able to change people's the, the whole paradigm of sparkling water, not just offer something that's kind of a tick one direction or the other, but really start again. Now that meant you're signing up for a longer <laughs> journey. I mean, right. we've all done this now for a while. But, I mean, you, you mentioned do stirrings building team. I mean, how have you, how has your stirrings journey affected how you thought about building your spindrift team? It, it, I would say as interesting and important as all the product differences that we've been talking about to me, the team sits above all else. And what we knew pretty early on is that if we were going to change the paradigm of sparkling, we were going to have to put together a world-class team. And there's a lot of brands that are kind of on the side of the road that have, you know, broken down trying to take down. Especially in this, this category. In this category. I mean, it's arguably the most competitive, the most visible. There's great stories out there. There's great products. So why us? Like what would, and for me, I think I, I start with the idea of okay, if we're gonna if we're gonna um, take on this challenge, we're gonna need the best people, um, great collaboration, great thinking, not be afraid to challenge one another. <clears throat> so my job largely became creating a culture to let that bubble up, and um, we got you know through hard work, through some luck. Um, we got surrounded ourselves with an incredible team. I mean, my direct team is world-class, brilliant operators, you know, great thinkers. You know, I found that sometimes with experience, you sort of lose some of that creativity. Yeah. You know, you get kind of worn down. Our guys are, you know, are, are, are both great executors, but also can, can think um, in, a, in, a, in a 
different way and in an evolved way. Yeah. Um, and, and so all of that really to me is why we've been able to navigate through, you know, these transition after transition in the business. Um, because we've been, we haven't been afraid to ask ourselves the hard questions Mm -hmm. and really stare down the gun of something that isn't working. We're, we're, I think we're very collaborative. We have kind of six, uh, um, core values in the business and we literally use them every day yeah. right. to try to keep us on, on the right course. But I think we, we, that to me is really the reason that we've been as successful as we are. And the business is scaled pretty dramatically in terms of just size and employees. Um, as you kind of think about sort of that journey, have there been any growing pains that kind of come to mind of, of things that you were unexpected? Yeah. I mean, without question, I think the um, the biggest challenge, I think, well, the biggest, one of the biggest forks in the road was when we decided to retire the, the soda line. So mm-hmm. in 2015, going into 16, we <clears throat> took a hard look at the business. And, you know, I'll never forget the day we sort of brought the team into a room and put all the characteristics, um, uh, started writing down characteristics of uh of the soda line and we wrote down refreshing delicious lightly carbonated lightly sweet um real fruit we brought the team in and asked them to describe which product we were talking about and a half the team (laughs) said the sparkling waters and half the team (laughs) said the soda so we realized we had a had a problem but nevertheless it was a big business four or five million dollar business very profitable you know there were a lot of things going for it but we just felt like we couldn't um, at the time, we, in bever- in my, our view is that in beverage, it's hard to do one thing well, let alone two. Right. right. And so, um, and I guess, you know, I, I, I do think we, we, you know, probably looking back on some of the earlier businesses that I, I was part of, Stirrings in particular, I think, you know, we probably tried to do a little bit too much and bring too many things forward. So, mm-hmm we made the hard decision to move out of that. And that was, you know, that was hard. I mean, you know, explaining that to board investors, to, mm-hmm. to the team, you know, um, why are we, why are we doing this? And I'd say, but, but, but to me, I think as long, my experience has been as long as you're communicating clearly and honestly with your team and, and they understand the plan and they understand, um, what the bigger picture is, um, they're, and, and it's not like you're springing it on them at the last minute. Right. By the way, you sort of brought them along for the ride. You, you know, we, it, 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 it works. You can sort of push this change through, mm-hmm. these hard decisions through. Um, and actually, at the end of it, you are a stronger business. Yeah, as a that's right. Right after the break, we'll be back with our featured guest, Spindrift founder and CEO, Bill Krillman. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. Subscribe for free in your podcast app of choice and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com. Follow us on our Unfinished Biz LinkedIn page and we'll keep you up to date on everything that's new. iTunes reviews are much appreciated if you love the show. But without further ado, let's get back to our episode with Spindrift founder and CEO, Bill Creelman. So Bill, has there been a bet the company moment for you? The sort of transition, you know, we were about, I can't maybe 15 or 16 million you know, with high prospects retiring a quarter of our revenue was that was, was a big bet. It was, it was a big bet. It was a growing business. It was very profitable. It I was remember. A business <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's right. usually we like those. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> 
Right. I think I, there were definitely some raised eyebrows when we <laughs> brought that forward. Um, you know, and I think along with that was, was you know, getting out of natural flavors. You mm-hmm. know, I think we reformulated all many of our products. You know, we, we went back and explained to our customers, many of whom are doing great, like, what, right. you're retiring sodas and t- changing all of your formulation. <laughs> like, hey, well, I don't, why? Like it, I think we had just won BevNet. It's one of the acknowledgments, you know, for the products. And so, you know, that that was that was a really important um, moment for us. And, you know, it's hard now looking back to say, of course, you yeah. would have made a decision <laughs> like that. Yeah. But the reality was at the time it was gut wrenching right. for, for us. And it was extremely disruptive from a supply chain standpoint, a customer standpoint. Um, but, um, you know, in the end, it proved to be, I think, the right decision. I mean, it's been a I mean, both at stirrings and and it's been drift. Just seems like there's been just been so many moments that have, you know, that are so gratifying. Is there is there a particular high high point in your entrepreneurial journey that stands out? I think, I think the high point for me is that <clears throat> we've been able to um, get to where we are with our core values and team intact. I mean, I. I run into work every day. You know, I, I, I think as, as my experience has been as, as these businesses grow and you bring in outside financing and you build mm-hmm. a team, all of whom has a very different experience yep. base, the risk is that you lose your way. Mm-hmm. You know, what is that special sauce? And I think, you know, my t- you, know you, you and the team may, may challenge this, but, but I think we've done as, you know, a good job at, at maintaining kind of what we all loved about the business to begin with. Um, now it hasn't, it, it changes, you know, you have to evolve the culture. I think mm-hmm. some, one of the mistakes is to think that culture is stagnant, that you define it in one month of one year. And that's what you always look back. Right. On. To me, it's actually the more people we bring in with different ideas and collaborate and learn and you sort of evolve it, but you, you have to maintain sort of that, the core essence. And I think that, I hope that we are still very much sort of the company that we were when we started and that that is, you know, that that is communicated all the way through to the consumer. And it's been it's been dynamic. I mean, you guys have the drifters and I mean, there's been a lot, a lot of new people. So different forms of communication like before it was easy to talk to five people yeah (laughs) a little little harder now. So I think you you guys to make those decisions. Yeah. Communication. I I um, I think, you know, but I um. I always say that communication is the hardest part for, for us, and we mm-hmm. do a lot around that. We have our all-company summit for three days, the whole company, and we announce our results to everyone every 90 days. We, you know, so we, we really have, we sort of, I think by acknowledging that communication was going to be hard, yeah. maybe uh-huh. we over-communicate, but I'm, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. I and mean, I'd rather be an over-communicator. Any, anyone, any day of the week should know, you know, what our sales are, what, you know, what their priorities are. And, and I think that's, that, that balance is, has, um, I think served us well so far. And on the flip side of being an entrepreneur, it's not all rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> is, is there a particular low point that stands out in your mind? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think sort of famously, at least within these four walls, I mean, we, we had a moment where we almost lost the Spindrift name, um, which was uh, quite challenging. So we, um, we had a, a coexistence agreement with another Spindrift brand that was challenged. And ultimately, I made the hard decision to, 
I made the only decision that seemed um, that seemed uh, uh, open to us at the time, which was to rebrand the business mm-hmm. entirely. So we came up with a new name, put you know re- redesigned all of our packaging labels. I brought everyone into a room and said, you know, I just want to let you know that I know you came here thinking you were working for <laughs> you're actually working for this other brand now and you know jaws hit the floor like what are you talking about but to their credit um you know no one left the building and and they were all prepared to move forward happened to be around the time that we all started working together which was an added complexity to all this but i remember the- bill pulling me aside and said we've got a we've got another better name <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? What's going on here? <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, even then, you know, Spindrift came from just, you know, a, a random day when I was 14 work or 16 working on a fishing boat. I mean, it, and I always loved it, but I, what I didn't appreciate until then was how many people had really become really attached yeah. to the name and it had a resonance that. So thanks, you know, in large degree to you, your team and, and your, you know, belief in us and, and belief that we could, you know, kind of resolve this conflict, we ended up ultimately keeping the name and kind of building our trademark base from there around Spindrift. But, but that was, I mean, that That's was... Right. To be clear, there's no problem with Spindrift. Just to be clear, yeah, we to be are... Clear, it, no, it's great. We it, now own it outright and, and have even beyond... Maybe, maybe share and, what and we this, also own share. the other the other mark. Well, well, <laughs> right. well, what was it? What was the name again? Um, the better name. Yeah. What was the quote unquote it better was, name? It was uh, Presscraft. That's right, Presscraft. Yes, that's right. Yes. I remember. <laughs> I, I was like, I, I wanted to say like Hovercraft for some yeah. reason. Um, well, therein lies part of the problem with the name, <laughs> um, um, which was pointed out to me on a few occasions, um, privately and publicly. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, naming is a whole other probably oh, conversation yes. for us, but but it, um, I think it just maybe there's a theme now developing around you know you sort of so much of this is belief and mm-hmm. and your belief in me and the team's you know belief, um, you know that that is the that is the sort of that's the good stuff too. You know, that's the stuff that prepares you for the inevitable challenges to come. So, what keeps you up at night these days? You know, it's funny. I, I, everything still keeps me up. I mean, really, there's not one thing. I think maybe to, to summarize it more succinctly, I think, you know, we as a team still feel like we have so much work to do. Mm-hmm. So the irony to me, not nine years into this now, which is crazy to even say, we feel like we're just getting started. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we're, we're, we're in many ways, especially in the, the, ecosystem of of sparkling we're just we're a tiny business mm-hmm. and so i didn't expect when i started this being working in my house in charleston in 2009 that i would have this amount of energy and excitement about <clears throat> the potential i had always imagined at our size and scale you start to say okay now we're sort of bumping our heads and we're trying to but the reality is is that you know we are still a startup and we're still designing the next phase of the business and in many ways, I'd say we're we're just hitting our stride, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And um, and that that is uh, you know so the the all the challenges that come with that, I guess the opportunity I think is what what I probably spend most of my time <laughs> thinking yeah. about. Um, it, it's a high class problem because I think one of the things yeah. we always talk about is it's a big this is a big category, yeah, right? A big category. And even though I think so much progress has been made. 
there's so much more room too. There is, which is exciting. And yeah, you can't say that for every for every right. category. Well, in a big to, category, it's growing this quickly. I know it is. Well, Wayne, to your question around, you know, so how do people know you're different? How do you explain your points of difference? I mean, it's really taken all of these years to sort of begin to unwind some of that expectation. Um, And that's the part that's really fun. You know, when someone tries the brand and they say, oh, my gosh, you know, I didn't get it for years. And and now I do, you know. That's right. So if people are just discovering us and. You know, that's 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 the part that starts to that gets you excited, because what if we could get more and more people to mm-hmm. have that same realization? Well, it's interesting how most of our entrepreneurs, including Bill, are just trying to make the better version of something. Uh-huh. You know, it's totally. Justin with with nut butter trying to improve upon what a Skippy or a Jeff had. Uh-huh. And Bill here starting out with trying to make a better soda. That's right. And it was interesting to find that. The better soda was actually sparkling water. Right. You know, sparkling water can have can have some great taste. It doesn't have to have a ton of sugar in it either. But he did start with a soda line that tasted great, better for you, but still had a lot of sugar. It did. And and he built a multi million dollar business, primarily in food service and in restaurants and things of that nature. And but he really, really found something in that sparkling water that that we that you talked about in terms of Trader Joe's, etc., and decided to really focus on that and walk away from millions of dollars of revenue from soda. Yeah, I think it's a hard thing to do, right? When you're an early entrepreneur, to walk away from something that's actually working, uh, I think that's that's always a challenge. When I mean, you speak about walking away, he almost walked away from his his name of Spindrift. And it, so that was a, that was a definite challenge for him. Um, you know, he he had some had some real legal challenges in terms of whether or not he was able to use the Spindrift trademark. Well, it sounds like that'd be a great topic to talk about one of, one of these Saturday night dinners that Bill has that I would I hope to be able to join one day, but yeah. I'm jealous of what you get to do. Yeah, I mean, our, our uh, off-sites, you know, and one of the board meetings that we have every year is actually on Nantucket. Um, the asterisk there is that it is during the off-season, so this is not the sunny Nantucket that I think most people would envision. So it's not the postcard Nantucket. It is not. It is uh, more often than not. It's the extremely bumpy flight or ferry ride and uh, get to a an island that at points or is going to have howling wind and, and, and a lot of cold. <laughs> it is still incredible to be out there. Don't get me wrong, but, you know, not necessarily shorts weather. I, I am... Um... I like to to say that my life on the weekends looks very similar to my life during the week, and and it's probably not a healthy thing. But I mean, I I love food, so I'm I you know we start every Saturday morning, Harley and I by you know going and getting uh, Skinny Dip Farms, this great organic farm that's close to our house, and we design a delicious meal and then hang, hang out with my four wonderful little munchkins. So, um, <laughs> So I, I do you mean, cook a family dinner every we every do. Saturday? Yeah, and we talk about it throughout the day, and then we eat it at night. Oh wow! <laughs> I mean, we're, we just love you know we love food. We cook with the kids. We love sourcing different interesting ingredients, trying recipes, and you know just continue, you know to to us that's fun, exciting. And um, do you come up with something new every Saturday? We try to. We I, I, not like we don't go at it with that intent. Like, yeah. But it's really it happens that way because of the ingredients. Just reading different yeah. articles or or seeing if someone's experimenting with 
an ingredient that you've never heard of or tried. We just we just really love it. I think it's the food, it's the actual consumption that's yeah. fun, but it's also the ritual of it. And you know, it's get, it becomes a family ritual. Getting everyone around the table finally yeah. for a few minutes, and it's usually literally a few minutes. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the best part of the day. So that, that's the good stuff. I mean, that's that's really the that's what I really enjoy. Awesome. Well. Bill, it's game time. Oh, no. Six, right. 60 seconds, our 60 rapid fire game. All right. Oh, right. Remember, we're trying to get through as many as possible. So don't get hung it's up on any one question. Right. Don't worry about the record. Everyone, everyone's so competitive. Yeah, you know? It's, like right. I'm the first person that's asked. That. Yeah, exactly. All right. Ready? Ready. What is your guilty pleasure? Chocolate. Top of your bucket list? Thailand. Uh, would you rather speak to any animal or speak in a foreign language? Foreign language. Favorite book? Uh, some stories. If you could meet any historical figure, who would it be? Abraham Lincoln. Morning person or night owl? Morning. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Um, flying. Read a book or watch a movie? <laughs> Read a book. High five or fist bump? High five. If you only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Mayonnaise. <laughs> What's your nice. favorite consumer brand that's not your own? Patagonia. As a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Marine biologist. Celebrity crush? Kristen Bell. Favorite <laughs> way to unwind after a long day? Uh, beer feed up. Uh, have any pet peeves? Um, PowerPoints that are odd numbers. Yes. First job. <laughs> Fisherman. Uh, last concert you went to? Um... Darling side. Podcast or music? Both. Podcast. Favorite vacation you've been on? Uh, Westport, Massachusetts. Who would play you in a movie of your life, Bill? That guy from the Ford commercial. I've been <laughs> With the hat high. What's, what's, your, raspy voice. what's your go-to karaoke song? Uh, it would have to be a Rod Stewart song. Favorite subject in school? <laughs> English model of your oh, that was you kicked some ass there. Those were real. Uh, that we, was strong. Have, the quite strong right there. Yeah, we're not even sure what I said. I would have to go back and reread that transcript. Ma- Mayo was the best. You yeah. may have, you may have had a blackout moment when you said it, but <laughs> but well, the Ford guy that yeah. was great. Yeah, that um, it's funny, man. We often talk about our favorite condiment, and uh, you know I always get a hard time for mayonnaise. But mayonnaise is a delicious ingredient. I, I agree with that. And olive oil, and lemon, you know. Yeah. No, don't. You, Maybe not the healthiest. But that's really funny. It's good. Well, last question. What what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? So, I think, you know, kind of building off of off of these themes. I think for me it's about um about maintaining that vision in the face of growth, you know, and I think that's when you're surrounded by people that are all smart and have great opinions and you brought them in because they're smart and have great opinions, you know, how do you, I think, define clearly and hold on to that, the essence. Um, and, and, um, you know, I think from, from our experience, it was really codifying it, you know, putting those six values. We actually have them hung up in our office above our sink and, you know, four foot, three foot letters. Um, so, but at this, you know, but what that does is it sort of sets the base and it, allows for expression kind of around it so managing that is really tricky but i think that to me has been 
that allows you to then um, you know, grow a business that you recognize nine years <laughs> later. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great advice. Well, Bill, thanks for joining us on Unfinished Biz. Thank you for having me, guys. Appreciate it. These are the opinions of Robin and Wayne and our guest entrepreneur and are not necessarily the opinions and thoughts of VMG partners. And now a word from our lawyers. This is not an offer to buy or sell any investments. Entrepreneurs interviewed on this podcast may not be associated with VMG businesses and discussions of their companies should not be viewed as an endorsement by VMG.